Hey again, trying something new here. We're recording out in the patio, so you'll hear the birds, maybe some traffic, maybe some insects. I listen to this. Yeah, we'll all be wishing for this in December. So, while the work-from-home job search continues, I'm going to try to segue into the learn-from-home realm. The two are not really all that separated. The other day I was talking to my mate here over lunch, and I mentioned that back when I went to school, that would be from the 1960s through the 1980s, the objective of going to school was to get some basic skills and information into my brain and behavior. The process was so regular and worked so well that I can still describe it even having left it behind over four decades ago. Let's see. Kindergarten served to teach us the very basics of going to school. We learned to recognize that a ringing bell meant that we were going to begin the class or change activity or even rush to put on our coats and run out to the playground or to catch the bus. We learned that speaking out was not allowed, that to get permission to speak was indicated by raising our hands up into the air. Upon hearing our name from the teacher's lips, only then could we speak. We learned to keep the classroom neat to cooperate with our classmates, and we learned some really basic information about the world around us. First grade stood out as the first year of desk-sitting formal education. Here we began to evolve from simply drawing pictures as we had done the year before to drawing out letters and forming simple sentences. Spelling was not emphasized. We also began to recognize those letters as reading material. Simple math was taught. We learned to add and subtract. Art and music and physical education were part of our training. We were also still being taught to get along with classmates. Second grade began the eternal, gradual, never-to-end confrontation with the English spelling system. Ten new words a week, meanings, spellings, use in a sentence, spelling test on Friday, copy misspelled words ten times each in your spelling notebook. Math continued to advance. I think this was the year we were approached with the so-called new math in my school district. We had to learn to think in terms of sets and subsets of objects. I remember my dad complaining about this once, but there was little to be done about it. Third grade focused a lot on reading and writing. This was the year that we began using so-called cursive writing, leaving behind the childish printing and joining our letters into that elegant calligraphy that would later become the basis for our legal signature on documents. Fourth grade was the multiplication table year. A star progress chart on the wall, a number per week. Week one, one times one equals one. Week two, two times two equals four. Now, while my mother commented that she had reached 12 by 12 equals 144, a gross, in my fourth grade, we only got up to 10 times 10. Must have been related to that new math stuff. Fifth grade brought us social studies. 
Student supplies included a complete set of colored pencils, which we would use to draw endless relief maps of South American countries. Now, I already had issues in fifth grade, as my father passed away in December of that year. However, those stupid relief maps were my downfall. I remember one that I had slaved over, was really proud of, and how Mrs. Lovegren had given me a really poor grade and how I had sobbed, literally sobbed over it. Sixth grade was the doorway to junior high. I studied in a mobile classroom. We exchanged mobile classrooms with the other sixth grade group when it was time for math class. That was exciting. For five straight years, we had been bound to our desks by invisible chains that were only unlocked for lunch or recess or the occasional bathroom emergency. Five minutes of our school day was now devoted to grabbing our math books, putting on our coats and galoshes, and heading over to the math class where we studied fractions. Long division had snuck in among relief maps in fifth grade. Another five minutes were devoted to getting back to our own mobile classroom. Seventh and eighth grades were junior high and represented a shifting of responsibility for our educational success from strict teachers with unbendable rules to kids moving from classroom to classroom and learning from different kinds of teachers who had different kinds of information to share and different ways of sharing that information. While everyone feared and dreaded being in Mrs. Cass's third grade classroom, or commented on just how hard line Mrs. Block was when teaching that times table in fourth grade, junior high was sold to us as the transition from having learned the basics to the real nitty-gritty of the free education system, high school. While we didn't move around all that much, while most of the classes were given by one teacher in a so-called home room, and depending on the school district, it was the teacher who moved, not the kids, we were being introduced to the idea that subjects could stand alone and general education was going to be replaced by specialization. High school, in my case, was mainly a social activity. I don't think I was alone in thinking that, and I also think my personal high school experience was unusual and probably doesn't reflect many generalizations I could make about high school. My so-called freshman year, I attended in a small, consolidated high school that served several small, rural, agricultural communities in the Midwest. It was not unusual for male students to miss school because they had to help out on the farm, especially during planting season. My extracurricular activities were pretty limited, Future Farmers of America and a school play. I did get to compete in one forensic speech competition. My piece was A Rose for Emily, and I think I won a ribbon, but I don't remember. I also had a chorus part in the school musical. A move from the Midwest to the Far West had me completing my high school years in a three-year high school. That could have been a setback for me. I'd already gone through the tenderfoot experience of being a freshman. Now I had to go through the tenderfoot experience of being a sophomore. I actually got through it better, though, because I was an experienced tenderfoot. Yeah, I took all the classes I needed to take. The biology teacher in my freshman year had done a really good job of getting me hooked on that science. The microbiology professor in my sophomore year did an equally good job of boring me to the point of not taking another science course for the remainder of my education. Old Mrs. Allen in my freshman year had managed, through stubborn persistence, to get us all to understand algebra and its importance to our future use of math. I don't remember the name of the sophomore year geometry teacher who taught facing the blackboard and managed to turn my mind completely away from math. 
High school was, though, meant to help me get engaged in my own education. It wasn't that microbiology was harder than biology or that geometry was more complex than algebra. I hadn't been filtered out by progressive difficulty. Instead, as I moved through the options presented in the system of teaching those themes, I found that my interest was not being kept. I could conclude that being an enthusiastic or stubborn teacher was of more value in maintaining my engagement than the teacher sitting on an elevated podium reading from a text the entire class, microbiology, or drawing figures on the board, geometry. The former teachers engaged me, in part, in the way they taught. The latter teachers bored me with a seeming lack of educator engagement. Which, of course, brings me to the idea of student engagement. Which, of course, brings me to this recent experience in participating, albeit in a very marginal way, in the evolution of education, now somehow forced upon us by an uncontrollable pandemic. What was it that that learning experience platform, or any LXP for that matter, was offering to that university that made it stand out or above the educational platforms the university was already employing in their distance learning efforts up to the earlier months of 2020? Student engagement. Let's do a Google hit count. Let's type the words distance learning student engagement in the search field. Look. It's just a little more than half a second, and I'm served up 201 million hits. Of course, many of those will be repeats, but that's still an impressive number. As I am one to do, I'll take a look at every one of the hits listed on the first page. What do I find? Well, I find, of course, the 10 ways to type articles. Though these seem to be a little more thorough, there's a blog post, but there are also a couple of more serious learning platforms that are giving that list. And what's on that list? Well, this is not a 10 ways to type podcast, so I'll just let any of you who might be interested to do your own Google hit count and browse through the first page results. I'm going to generalize. While I, or any educator, can agree with most of the items on those lists, where I, and some educators, get stuck is that almost the entire list is based on what the educator needs to do. Make the lessons shorter and more fun. Communicate with your students regularly. Change assessment from test to gradual project evaluation. None of these seem, though, to address the real issue here. The educator is already totally engaged in the distance learning adventure, and he or she has loaded all of this stuff onto one or another platform, learning on the way how to disconnect from the desk and the bookshelves and the black or whiteboard, and reach out to students through the black unfolded electronic apparatus on his or her dining room table or on the desk in the guest bedroom. Who, though, is actually disengaged? The students. Is it really entirely the educator's responsibility to engage the student? Partially. Only partially. Before I can talk about student engagement, I have to tell the story of teacher engagement. I mentioned Mrs. Allen earlier. Here's her story. Mrs. Allen, the 102-year-old algebra teacher. I am of the generation that took algebra in my freshman year at high school. Everybody took algebra. It was the only math class for freshmen at my consolidated learning place. About half the class of 77 were in one hour, the other half in class the other. 
small school. The teacher was Mrs. Allen. She was at least 102 years old. The school board had been trying to get her to retire for over 40 years and had probably given up on the idea at least 10 before I sat in her classroom. Having class with Mrs. Allen was like having class with your mean-spirited great-great-grandma. While she looked sweet on the outside, her smile was always ironic, and her attitude towards teaching was strict and old school. No fooling around in Mrs. Allen's class. Once we all got the basic rules down during the first semester, the second semester was basically solving problems. Mrs. Allen would spend the first five or so minutes of class chalking problems onto the lower half of the blackboard, she couldn't reach the upper half, and then instruct us to solve them. She would then sit at her desk and doze off. Yes, she actually went to sleep. We of course took advantage of this and worked together with our neighbor or the person behind us to make sure that we understood and solved the problem correctly. No one wanted to suffer Mrs. Allen's silent, ironic smile when she pointed out just where we had gone wrong with the figures. After a quarter of an hour or so, she would suddenly open her eyes, look confusedly about the class, figure out where she was, and call on different students to come up to the board and show his or her figures and the final answer to each of the problems. She would either subtly praise us or ironically curl her lips. The last trimester of the year, we had a student teacher, can't remember his name, let's call him Mr. B. Mrs. Allen silently observed from her desk as Mr. B tried to convince us that we could understand higher algebra. One particular problem I remember he called it a booger, language Mrs. Allen considered inappropriate both for a class setting as well as for talking about algebra. One day Mrs. Allen spent the class period in the teacher's lounge, leaving us alone with young Mr. B. He put a complex problem on the board and then told us to work on it with our neighbors. When one student mildly protested that Mrs. Allen always expected us to figure out the problems on our own, he let us in on a little secret that Mrs. Allen had shared with him, a secret that had even deepened his own basic understanding of mathematics. Mrs. Allen never really dozed off. She was just pretending. She came from a generation of math teachers who, in general, believed that individuals should be able to learn and use math without help from others. Each student should be evaluated upon their individual merits. Mrs. Allen, though, believed that math was a unique language that communicated thoughts in a way that spoken language could not. She felt it important that her students orally practiced this language with one another, learning to use the language to communicate beyond the basic rules that old school teaching had always insisted were more important. This anecdote came back to me years later as I was conversing with an adult student in Barcelona. Christina was a working mathematician, and we were discussing the similarities and differences between math and linguistics. I mentioned that one of the reasons I enjoyed linguistics so much was because I often got emotional when looking at language. Here Christina pulled out one of her workbooks from work and showed me a page that was half covered with numbers and symbols. She asked me if I knew what the graphic images meant. I of course did not, though I could identify some of the basic traits that I had learned years before with Mrs. Allen. Christina explained that she could not translate into English what the formula meant, that's why it was written in a formula. 
As she ran her fingers through the line, she suddenly stopped at a particular symbol and told me that right here, on reading this line, she became choked up with emotion. The emotion came from two sides. One was the emotion she felt because she knew that she understood what the symbols were communicating. She understood the language on that page. The other was the emotion she felt because she not only understood the language, she understood what was being communicated, the concept behind and within the language. Though she could not put it into words, she could put it into symbols. The lesson here, then, is the difference between learning the rules of any language and the actual use of that language to communicate. We can teach only so much grammar and structure to our students. On the other hand, we should try to get our students emotionally worked up over their understanding of those rules and how that understanding leads them to understanding how a speaker of the language uses those words to communicate thought and how that thought can be understood. That is an important emotional connection that is sometimes missing from our language classes. Now, I wrote that blog post three years ago. I was talking about our responsibility as teachers to lead our students from an understanding of the basic to the application of the behavioral. I was putting the responsibility for engaging the students on the teacher's shoulders, but only insofar as the teacher should be aware of not only the bridge between theory and practice, but should also know how to lead students across that bridge, keeping clear that the bridge is two-way. That is the teacher's part in student engagement. I'd call it teacher engagement, but I'd like the term vocation better. A summons or strong inclination to a particular state or course of action, as Webster's poetically defines it. There are exceptions, but most all teachers I have met share this feeling that teaching is something they were meant to do, and that inclination leads them to always be better teachers. It's not just a job. What we might want to discover, though, is the student part of this equation. I wouldn't call it vocation, though that might be a motivating factor. If a student feels the strong inclination to study what we are teaching, then engagement will come as part of that inclination. Yet I would lean more on Mrs. Allen's intuitive understanding that students will work together on a problem if allowed to, that prohibiting pair or group work cuts off a valuable source of engagement. And Mrs. Allen secretly knew this decades before Facebook and Twitter and Pinterest and all the rest of them replaced sitting around in the shade of that tree over there, gossiping about class with your mates in authentic face-to-face -face time. So how about we take a look at that idea of tricking students into engagement as Mrs. Allen did with us? Fine. Good start for a future episode. Going to let this one rest for now, get it recorded and ready to share with all of you. Thanks for listening. Tell others you think might be interested. What was it? Link, share, notify, comment? Can't remember. Take all those clicky actions to get this about. Hate to ask for them, but it seems that despite hearing the request over and over again, you all still need to be reminded, where's your engagement? You're listening to Radio Revolution.